Now, once the enemy stopped pursuing the woman, he went to make war with her offspring. It doesn't mean he doesn't pursue the woman after that. It means that he perceives that his efforts at that time to destroy her are not succeeding. So he he abates those and refocuses. And he refocuses on the offspring. So verse 17, he says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, how does John, how does the Revelation define the rest of her offspring? So he can't pursue the woman anymore and he now goes to make war with the rest of her offspring. You'll notice here the word is the rest of her offspring. In the Greek, that word for rest is this word, L-O-I-P-O-Y, and it's pronounced loipoi, loipoi. Loipoi, L-O-I-P-O-Y, means the following, remaining ones, the other, that which remains, a rest, a residue, a remnant. Remnant. So he goes to make war with a remnant of the offspring. Now the reason it's called a remnant, of course, is that in describing those who keep the commands of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, he's describing a people who have lived on the earth for 2,000 years, many of whom, most of whom, are now in heaven, souls being under the altar. So the remainder of the offspring is what's being referred to here, but you will notice, of course, immediately, he's not speaking of an individual as in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's speaking of a corporate man. So the offspring who's taken up to God and to his throne is yet on the earth to be made war with by the enemy, by this dragon. So, as I contended earlier, the rest uh, being caught up to God and to His throne is not an indication that they are taken up into heaven and out of the world. It isn't much more the point that they are seated on the throne, meaning they are ensconced in the authority of Christ 
from which position they have immunity from the the wiles of the devil and from being persecuted by the devil. Uh, They have immunity from being successfully persecuted by the devil. Uh, One of my friends has been known to say, it is not the inevitable right of the enemy to kill the saints. I would argue that it was never an inevitable right. Anytime the enemy has any measure of prevailing against the saints, it is in furtherance of a divine purpose which ultimately backfires on the enemy. The notable example of that, of course, is when the enemy was permitted to kill Jesus. The way Jesus himself framed it was he said, you have no authority over me unless God gave it to you. The point being clear and obvious that in his worst day, in his worst rampage, then the enemy still being a creature is absolutely bound (coughs) by the sovereign authority of God, the Creator of all things, including the enemy himself. So he must apply for permission and God only grants him, God never grants permission for chaos, mindless, pointless chaos to reign in the earth. Even when it looks like that, there's a purpose in God to be served. We may not know the purpose at the moment that we're going through it, but always in retrospect we see the purpose of God. And certainly future generations will see with greater clarity than we would or that we do at the present time. But the point is that there's always divine intentionality associated with the worst things that Satan is allowed to do and the fact is he he can only do it if he's allowed to do it. The principle is established long before Jesus in the book of Job where Satan applies for permission to tempt or to torment Job and God grants him limited permission to do so. But in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's altogether apparent that, and Jesus said it to Pilate, the Roman governor, he said, you don't have any authority over me unless the one who sent me has given you permission. Now, in terms of the outcome, of course, it was horrific for Jesus. How did God cure the outcome of the death of Christ? Or did He? The answer is simple, He raised Him from the dead. When He raised Him from the dead, He disarmed principalities and powers and made a show of them openly because the ultimate threat is the threat of death. And when you are resurrected from the dead, you're not in terror of death anymore. As long as you haven't died, 
The prayer might well be to keep you from dying. But the resurrection of the dead is an absolute overcoming of the condition of death so as to render death powerless, without sting and without a hint of victory. So when Jesus was raised from the dead, He became the first fruits of those who slept. In short, He established the principle that the Son, Son of God, will never be held in the chains of death, that it's impossible for righteous ones to see corruption. The only thing that ever dies with the righteous is their natural bodies taken from the dust of the earth. But they have spiritual bodies in which go to be with God in heaven awaiting the time of the resurrection, at which time the natural body will be, uh, will be, which had been buried in the earth, will then be raised but not as a natural body, but as a spiritual body and at that point it's indestructible so death truly has no sting. But to go back to what we're saying, he makes war with the offspring of the woman and it's a reference to the corporate man. Now, these are described collectively as the offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In my last broadcast, I absolutely came down hard in an insistent fashion on the social practice of either being a racist in the body of Christ, a repeat, being a racist in the body of Christ, or countenancing racism in the body of Christ. It's a flat denial of the gospel of the cross because the gospel of the cross is how God is in Christ, in Christ, in this spiritual man, reconciling the world to Himself and making us ministers of reconciliation. The problem is, frankly, that we've conflated the body of Christ with church denominations. In church denominations, I think you pick, pick the church that you want to, to examine under this scrutiny, whether it's a state church or just a, a denomination or an independent charismatic church. Their strength lies, the strength of national churches, the strength of denominations, the strength of 
independent churches lies in their ability to say to the population that they serve, we are like you. We are like you. So all the prejudices, hatreds, all the hubris that exist unchallenged in any society is simply brought in without scrutiny, without checking it, without a word ever being spoken against it, simply brought into that national church. The church of the English, that's for English people. Oh, they will say, you know, we, in the English Empire, or the the British Empire, we have, um, you know, we have blacks or we have uh, Asians or whomever in the English church. Not so. The Anglican church has what is called a communion, the Anglican community across the world. And that's as a result of the fact that there used to be a British Empire. But in true reference, citizens of, or members of the British Empire were not called citizens of Great Britain. You know what they were called? Subjects. Not citizens of the empire, but subjects of the empire because the notion was that the British were the rulers. It's what gave rise to such pathetic descriptions as royals and commoners. (laughs) Can you believe the arrogance of the language? But worse, the practice that, that that sustains these concepts in the face of supposedly a national church where Christ is the representational head or the titular head and of which the monarch is simply God's anointed, no different from the Roman church and the Roman empire, but no different from the Ukrainian church and the Ukrainian people or the Russian church and the Russian people. It's it's a racist group. It's a group that understands that the, the national group it represents has hegemony over all the teachings, over all the practices, and that if you are from another place or if you are, if you somehow are able to baptize your way into it, it's a given that you're not equal, that you could never be the uh, the head of it. Um, you know, I, I, I could go further with this, but I won't. You've got, gotten my point. And in national groups, in denominational groups, their appeal is to the broader population that they serve. And typically, these, na- these groups that uh, these denominational groups want to be a kind of everyman to that culture. That's why the Baptists never preach against racism. 
They want to be like any Baptist in their community. You take some rural uh, community or city community um, where the people uh, have not have not grown to understand the value of other citizens despite the law that tries to level the playing field. The law is no substitute and cannot change the hearts of men. And all racism is rooted in the idea that I live by the sweat of my brow and somebody else is my competition. Business puts it this way, kill the competition. There have been times when certain groups of people within a society looked upon other groups of people in the same society, seeing them as the competition, actually hanged them, killed them. The root of it is the love of money. The root of it is the belief that your economy can only be attained by the sweat of your brow and whoever threatens your efforts is your enemy who ought to be killed. Now, and where you come down to individual groupings of people, they very much, uh, like the independent church, the independent charismatic church, they just want people who look like themselves, who sound like themselves, the same basic socioeconomic class, they don't want to be disadvantaged in their own churches. None of these configurations, none of these configurations keep the commands of God. None of them have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What, is the, what, what are the commands of God? Jesus puts it this way, love one another as I have loved you. He summarizes the entirety of whatever God has commanded in that singular command, love one another as I have loved you. This is different from the commandment that says, love your neighbor as yourself. This was a command given to the Jews and their neighbor was their brethren. And the only other persons who might be covered by that statement were, quote, the strangers who were within their gates. But by and large, your neighbor was your brother when that commandment was given to the Jews. That's not the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the command given to Moses to give to Israel. Repeat these things in the hearing of Israel. But Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Now how is that different from love your neighbor as yourself? Well, the standard is different, obviously. What do you mean the standard is different? Let me spell it out. 
your neighbor was your brother. And more than likely, your neighbor was related to you familiarly if you look at the way Israel settled the land of Canaan. All the twelve tribes, with the exception of Levi, were given an allotment of land. And that tribal allotment was further divided into clans and then subdivided into families and ultimately divided into your own household. So who was your neighbor? That was the big question that Jesus asked uh, the lawyer, or that the lawyer asked Jesus, because the assumption on the part of the lawyer was, I only have to do this to those I'm related to, because that was the simple configuration of the way that Israel received inheritances in land. This is how the land was distributed. And being an agrarian society, people didn't go miles away to to conduct commerce. Uh, They lived on their farms and they went to town. And within within those dimensions, the people you met were your own people, of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Issachar, of the tribe of Benjamin, and the rest of them. So your brethren love one another, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, he was saying basically love your brother. It was an attempt to reverse what had happened when Cain killed Abel. But the kingdom of God was always going to be more than the Jewish people. They were meant to be included in the kingdom, but the promise was that in thy seed, what God said to Abraham, I will bless all the nations of the earth. So there had to be a different commandment than love your brethren if people are coming in from every, quote, tribe, tongue, language, and nation. The command that covers that is, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said, why are you calling me Lord if you will not do the things I command you? And he will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. In short, you never submitted to my sovereignty. So no, the basic policy of national churches is that they are the church of a people group, a national group. The basic policy of a denomination is that they are intent on attracting people of the same social, uh, ethnic, and, um, and, and, and economic circumstances. Look, don't you understand? That's why black people go to black churches on Sundays and white people go to white churches on Sundays. And one group is called the National Baptist because they're black and it distinguishes them from the Southern Baptist, which are white. Now, isn't this the elephant in the room? 
Isn't this the elephant in the room? Why are we stepping around it? And, and who goes to Pentecostal and charismatic churches? People from your own social class. Your own social class, often your own racial uh, uh, um, classification. That's how it works in church circles. It's the elephant in the room. They do not adhere to the commandment of Jesus. That's for His people. As I have loved you, that's the standard. Love one another as I have loved you. The standard is the same for man as it is for God because the one speaking is the living God. The one before the commandment of old was, love your brother, love the one from the same tribe as you. It wasn't even love love, uh, all the sons of Abraham or all the sons of Jacob. Uh, The implicit, given the way the society was divided, the implicit reference is to people who come from the same stock as one of the twelve tribes. And we saw that in Israel. They wouldn't go to war when their brothers were fighting, if it didn't benefit them. So, this is a time to peel off the mask. Those who are the offspring of the woman, whom the enemy goes after, are those who, quote, keep the commands of God, number one, and number two, they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? The testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. You can plunder the heavens for the Word of God. The Word is living and alive in you, (coughs) sharper than any two-edged sword. It circumcises the heart, removes the fleshly. All these things I've been talking about are the way that the heart is clad with fleshly devices, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. This woman is laden with lust and by the time she falls into this debauchery, the lust of her people have overtaken them. But they're different from those who keep the testimony of the, who keep the, who keep the commands of God and have the testimony of Christ. The commands of God will require me. You notice I'm not saying will require you. The commands of God will require me to love anyone whom God has received as a son in Christ in exactly the same way that Christ loves them. Now what is that? What is that standard? God commended His love toward us, so we're still talking about love. God commended His love toward us in that 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is this command? What's the standard that says, as I have loved you, love one another as I have loved you. Standard is blatant. It's a display of the character of God Himself in that while we yet hated God, while we yet were opposed to God, the love of God, what is in God toward us, caused Him to sacrifice Himself in the form of the Son that we might be given access to Him as Father while we yet hated Him. That means it doesn't matter what we did by way of responding, the love of God stands alone and is unrivaled in its perfection and in its beauty. So God requires me to love those who are assembled to Him in the manner, in this manner, that while they yet hate me, I must be willing to lay down my life for their well-being while they yet hate me. Those are those who keep the commands of God. Not all this, I don't even have a word for it, excuse that people make. When I was in college in Oklahoma some years ago, was it a Christian college and I noted, I came up from the islands and I noted that white people went to white churches, black people went to black churches. And I went to, I remember who he was, a professor of Greek at the time. He's dead now but I won't mention his name. And I asked him, I said, now why are white people going to white churches? I was in the Church of Christ. Why are white people going to white churches and black people going to black churches? And he said to me, well, you know, they're welcome to come here, but they prefer to be with themselves. That's totally different from what I experienced growing up in the islands where all the races, certainly in the body of Christ or in any representation of the body of Christ, um, freely congregated together. And his was this weak, tragic answer. But he couldn't go beyond what his church stood for. Because you want an upheaval? Bring in a bunch of uh, non-standard people into that denomination and there would have been a, a battle royal because many of the people would simply have left. Many of the people would simply have left because they don't want to be part of that. So the, the, the church community, knowing that, buried the issue. It never came on the radar. And yet they would send missionaries overseas to tell people how God loved them, 
who would not be acceptable in their congregations back home. No, this is a farce. The night is far spent. The day is upon us. We'll either wake up and change as keepers of the command of Christ, bearing the testimony of the Word of God, or we will be separated as apostate. Now, who's going to do that? The Lord Himself. A fool keeps making excuses. A fool keeps avoiding the uncomfortable. That's why they died in the wilderness. They heard the word every day for 40 years and they were disobedient and they were unbelieving. The word for disobedience and the word for unbelieving are the same word, is the same word. It's the word apatheo. We get the English word apathy from it. Most people I know who fit into the categories that I have described, they intend to do something about this. Forty years later, people who intended to obey God became bleached bones in the desert. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. Change has come to the body of Christ. And the unfortunate truth is this, that it took the world to raise the hue and cry. And even as it does, most of the big leaders are still ducking and running. And to them I say, you don't have a future in the things of God. You'll be discarded as readily as you discarded the truth. I'm a voice declaring the will of God. These things will happen and no one should be surprised when Babylon the Great has fallen and becomes a haven for every unclean bird or animal, which is a way of saying Ichabod, the presence of God and the glory of God will depart from the woman. It has always been on her offspring, described as those who, quote, keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm speaking with an uncharacteristic authority. I don't need your permission. I don't even need your belief. I'm speaking the Word of God and a fool will say no to God in his heart.
Now you will decide whether the time for change that you've put off has come or the Word will have no entrance into your heart and the life that it brings you will block at the door. If that happens, then I will say to you, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Like Jerusalem, a fully occupied place was a desert and a wilderness spiritually. Next week or next time, I'll begin a set of recordings on the beast of seven heads and ten horns who opposes those who bear the testimony of Jesus and obey His commands as we have described the testimony of Jesus and as we have described His commands. How how this beast will oppose and how this woman sliding into Uh, well, passing apathy and sliding completely into uh, disobedience becomes a supportive voice for all of the wickedness associated with the beast. These things are It's time to bring out the ancient things. We cannot escape. How shall we escape if we neglect? Neglect means we once had it, but it's no longer vital. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? I believe the time is shortly coming where God will sound another trumpet in the earth in which He announces the time for His people to separate themselves from the hegemony and influence of this wicked harlot. The harlot was once the woman clothed with the sun. I'm Sam Solon. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.